Good morning. It's good to see everyone today gathered together here in the house of the Lord and to hear from his word. What an incredible blessing we have and the freedoms we enjoy. We're taking a very brief break from our exposition in Genesis uh, in the life of Joseph. Uh, The elders have been talking recently and actually for some time about sprinkling in gospel messages here and there. And so that's what our purpose is today. The title of the message is, I once was blind, but now I see. I wonder if you've ever uh, known a blind person and talked to them. I think most of us have at some course over our lives. Early on as a young Christian, I remember uh, uh, talking with one man uh, for an extended amount of time and you know, it seemed that he was content, and from what I understand, most blind people do become content. Maybe it's because they don't have any other choice, but um, it, it is interesting to think of that. I can't even imagine to even contemplate what it would be to be blind. It would be horrific. And, um, you know, we have Fanny Crosby, one of our favorite hymn writers. We've got several of her hymns in our hymn book. There's hundreds more that are not in there. But hymns like Blessed Assurance, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. It's as though she was blind, even though she was blind, she had more of a keen insight into the glories of the gospel and the wonders of the atonement of Christ. And today we will consider the last miracle as it occurs in the gospels. It's in the synoptics, Matthew Mark and Luke, we're going to be looking at the perversion from Luke, but it's the very last miracle that Jesus performs right before Passion Week, perhaps just a day or two before Passion Week. And so it's very important, it's very instructive for us. Blind Bartimaeus, a poor, blind beggar that has nothing to offer to Christ, cries out for mercy and receives it. I think he's a picture, I think he's a type of all sinners that are lost in our lostness and crying out for mercy to the one and only one that can help. He sees more clearly as a blind, poor beggar on the side of the road than even the disciples did just days before, and we'll illustrate that. Mark records this event in vivid detail. Mark received most of his information from the Apostle Peter, of course, who was in the inner circle with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the the vivid details that are there, Mark himself was not there, likely came through Peter and ultimately through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This miracle is of special significance because through it, Jesus in his last hour, as it were, his 11th hour of his life, the last week of his life, performs this miracle demonstrates his power, his deity, and the only hope for man's ruin. So let's turn to Mark chapter 10, find your way to verse 46. We'll be taking up 46 to 52 to the end of the chapter. And follow along as I read from the New American Standard. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd, and with a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. 
But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand, for he is calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and he came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began to follow him on the road. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come today asking that you would meet with us in a powerful way by your spirit. Continue to pour your spirit upon this place as we've already sensed your presence among us through the singing and the reading of your holy word. And now, Lord, we pray for clarity. We pray that each one here would marvel and see the free grace of the gospel and the offer of mercy. Lord, I pray for especially the one who is without Christ or the one that is yet to make a public declaration that you might be pleased to stir in those particular hearts in particular this day. Lord, that you would awaken sinners from their slumber. Lord, that you would revitalize and encourage believers and edify them, that they would have stronger walks with you. And Lord, we pray all of this for your glory. Amen. Mark, from the middle of chapter 8 to the end of 10, so about three chapters, there's one primary theme that continues to be hit on, and that is the theme of discipleship. Back in chapter 8, there's a turn, um, the climactic passage there where Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? You remember that whole thing? Peter answered, you are the Christ. It says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven and so forth. And then he goes on in verse 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man also will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory with his fathers and his holy angels." That theme continues here. You see that theme of discipleship really in its fulfillment in verse 52. What does he do? He regains his sight. He gets up. He worships the Lord. And what does he do? He follows him. And so you see that theme there. Those who will receive the kingdom of God must receive it as a child, he says earlier in this chapter, coming with no demands, not laying out, I'll come to you if you give me this, that, 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 that. No, none of that. No claims to good works, but to realize that you are helpless, you are poor, you've got nothing to offer a holy God, but your sin, and you've got a lot of it. You've got a lot of it. I've got a lot of it. When compared to the perfection and the holiness of God, Jesus gives three clear predictions of his suffering and his laying down his life and being betrayed, but also that he will rise again in chapter 8, 9, and 10. After each prediction, the disciples show their ignorance by not getting it. And in fact, that comes to a head. I'd like to just draw your attention to it. If you look back just a little bit earlier too, 
I believe it's verse 33 of chapter 10. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And then notice with me, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he says, and notice the exact words that he says to Bartimaeus, What do you want me to do for you? What if Jesus was to come to you and say, what do you want me to do for you? What would be your answer to that? And of course, this is how dull, this is how, uh, what's the word, uh, just dull, we'll leave it at that, that the disciples are. And look at verse 37, okay, they've been following Jesus for three years. Here's James and John, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in glory. What do they want? It's a demonstration of the hardness of their heart, their own pride. That's what they want, the one thing. And so it's interesting, and Bartimaeus has way more insight than even they do. You see, their request was proud. It was self-centered. And how much of our actions and words are centered around those very sins? A lot. Okay? I'll be the first to admit that. And so... But the key to true greatness is not how many people you get to serve you or how high up you can sit or how close up you can sit. It is how many people you can serve and to lay down your life. Jesus illustrates this beautiful and probably one of the central verses of the gospel. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so the two themes of Mark's gospel is really servanthood and sacrifice. Or who is Jesus and what has he come to do? And so as we come today, we have this wonderful gospel story. A story of a desperate sinner, one that knew his weakness, one that knew his inability, one that knew he had nothing to offer God in regards to good works. Blind Bartimaeus knew his situation What about you today? Do you understand anything of your desperate situation apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ? Remove the imputed righteousness of Christ. And what is your desperate need? Righteousness before a holy God. Righteousness that you can't muster up. Good works that you can never muster up because what is the standard? Perfection. You shall be perfect as my heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. Are you perfect? We are not perfect. And that's why we need Christ. And that's why we need a Savior. And that's why we need to be born again. Have you been born again today? Ask Him to work in your heart if He hasn't. Now, the scene is Passover is approaching. Okay, Here at the end of chapter 10, uh, the very next section is the triumphal entry in all three Gospels. So we know the timestamp is accurate. This is in the last week of Christ's life. Um, and so it's, it's here at the very end. All the Jewish pilgrims from the north are passing through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. It's busy. The streets that would normally have some travelers on it, but it wouldn't be packed like this because you have huge amounts of Jewish pilgrims heading 
to Passover. Now, you just have to use your sanctified imagination. Here's a town. Um, Bartimaeus woke up like any other day, wherever he slept, you know, away from the city gate, you know, off, off somewhere, maybe in some straw. He dusted himself off and stretched, grabbed his stick and began finding his ways and taking the turns off to the gate where he can beg for alms as those that would be passing by. Maybe somebody would offer him, here comes Bartimaeus. Here comes the other one, you know, offered some bread, you know, to them as they're on their way. And there he goes and he finds his way near the main city gate. And he finds his spot, probably the same spot where he would normally sit. Now, Jericho is one of the most famous cities in the Bible. I think you probably know some of the history of Jericho, hopefully. Moses was not permitted to go into the promised land, but what happened? In Deuteronomy 34, he was taken up and he was able to Mount Nebo and he was able to look. It says opposite Jericho and he was able to look over the Jordan into the promised land. It is in Jericho that Rahab the harlot um, exercised her faith in Israel's God by hiding the spies when they came. It is in Jericho where the the, the, um, Israelites come and they march around the city for six days and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. After the conquest, Jericho is given and allotted to the tribe of Benjamin. In New Testament times, of course, the uh, uh, Herod built a new city just to the south, which would become his winter palace there. And of course, we know that uh, uh, it was uh, in Jericho where the Good Samaritan loved his neighbor by stopping to help him from Luke 10, and also this story of blind Bartimaeus. It's about five miles west of the Jordan River and about 17 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So it's still a day or two's journey until Jerusalem. It was a very lush area. It was dubbed the City of the Palms. It was about 750 feet below sea level, one of the lowest parts in the earth even to this day. So the natural streams would come in and it would be a very fertile place. Of course, Jericho was cursed and, um, and, you know, after the conquest, and, but yet the city lives on. Now, only Mark gives this man's name. Of course, Matthew gives, you know, the liberal scholars love to run all over this because Luke says as he was entering Jericho, Mark says as he was leaving Jericho, um, and then there's two blind men in Matthew's account, but don't let that disturb you because the original city of Jericho was destroyed, and when Herod built the new city, it was to the south. So it could be that Luke was referring to the old city as they were entering, entering the new city, and, and Mark was talking about leaving the old city. Anyway, it's inspired, and we must believe it. So as we come, we think about our need of mercy, and that's really the theme of my four points. Uh, if you got the email, I think I put them in there. Mercy needed, mercy requested, Mercy offered and mercy adored. We've been singing of the mercy of God, haven't we? Our sins, which are many, his mercy is more. Isn't that marvelous? And so let's just walk through this text. My purpose is that we would see the free grace of God and the salvation that can be had by any who would cry out. Let's consider this man. 
come with me to Jericho and just enter in into this, this context. And, and, and we come to Bartimaeus, this poor blind beggar. Uh, just the fact that he's a poor blind beggar and all of these people that have their sight that are milling on the roads would be enough to typically just kind of quiet one down and just quietly open up his, his, his outer garment to receive alms, you know, without saying anything. But of course, we know that's not the case. Passover is approaching. All these pilgrims are traveling just as Jesus and the disciples were. Jericho, as I said, was below sea level. Jerusalem was elevated, so it was about a 3,500-foot ascent to get to Jerusalem. And those Psalms of Ascent that you know from Psalm 120 to 134 Um, began with, in in my trouble, I cried to the Lord. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. And so as they're ascending, they would sing these songs of ascent as they would ascend to Jerusalem. The text says that he was begging. Well, couldn't he just go down and get some food stamps? Welfare check? No, there was none of that in the first century. Absolutely none of that. You were dependent either upon family or the graciousness of those in your community to receive the food, the necessities that you needed. Biblical tradition, of course, we know, and through the Old and New Testament, portrays the destitute, the widow and the orphan and, and others that are destitute under the special protection of God. And oftentimes, contrastly, those who are rich, that they are oppressive and they are, they are uh, uh, they're sinful to the poor. They oppress often. Lazarus was a poor, starving beggar. So blind beggars lining the roads traveled where they would be the most busy. There would be many of them. In fact, there was one estimate that uh, one, one man was recorded as saying, through the course of a half a mile as he walked, that about 50% of the male population was blind. That's probably an exaggeration, but there is much evidence that um, the dust and the glare of the sun and the unsanitary habits of the day, that many people, if they were not blind, they at least had impaired eyesight. And so this was a very, very common problem. I mean, just consider out of all the miracles of Jesus, how many blind people he heals. It's quite a bit. And so surely it's true. And you can think of, uh, you know, maybe to, for little Johnny in the elementary school, he goes there and he comes home and his eyes all pink and gooking up and all that. And what happens? One kid gets it and it just spreads, right? And so that's probably the way this was. It was contagious and it spread. Not only is Bartimaeus materially poor, but before crying out for mercy and receiving mercy, he's spiritually poor. Well, we too are like Bartimaeus. Though he was physically blind, there's another kind of blindness that is far worse, and that's spiritual blindness. Oftentimes, those who are physically blind have been born again, and they have spiritual insight. But we are like Bartimaeus. The great physician's diagnosis of the church of Laodicea says, in this proud church's state, because you say I am rich and I become wealthy and I have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Those who don't see their need of a Savior are blinded by their own sin. 
Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4. For even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan wants to keep us blinded. He doesn't want us to respond. Remember the parable of the sower. The gospel seed is scattered. What happens? The birds of the air come. And what? Take the gospel seed so that it finds no root in the heart. Ephesians 4.17 talks about how the Gentiles walked. And Paul is encouraging and admonishing the church in Ephesus not to walk as the Gentiles walked. And then he gives this description that in the futility of their mind, that their minds are darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. And there's ignorance in them because of the hardness of their heart. Bartimaeus was physically blind, and so also those of us, those of you who are lost and have not been born again are spiritually blind. See, the poor have nothing to offer God except to cry out for mercy. We must understand that it's by grace alone that we are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we know that. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and he caused us to be born again. Well, mercy needed. Spiritually blind, apart from supernatural grace, will remain spiritually dead. And now we move to verse 47. Mercy requested. Do you seek the Lord with unwavering perseverance? Do you seek the Lord with persistence? Those of you who are outside of Christ, those of you who have a a, a weak profession. Look at verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This word cry out is Crazo, it can mean to croak, like an annoying crow that sometimes comes up here and croaks. Uh, it, it means to, to cry out vehemently, to scream, to shriek. It's the word that's used of the demons when Jesus cast out the demons. And what happens? The demons shriek as they cry out. It's a word that's used of the demoniac earlier in chapter 5 of this very gospel. And the tense here in the original is that he continued to cry out. And the text actually tells us that. He's crying out continually. The reaction of those around him confirmed that because in verse 48 it says, many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more. Um, Sternly told him, the ESV has rebuked the, the New English Translation has scolded. He was, they were scolding him. They strongly discouraged him from crying out. But their opposition does what? Fans into flame his voice so that he cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. What is he saying? In all the hustle and bustle, the noise kind of like before the prelude that was barreling through the, the breezeway and inside of here from all the fellowship. There, there's, there's sort of a, a roar, as it were, and yet he lifts up his voices above even what that is. 
First of all, Jesus, son of David, what is he saying? Well, Isaiah 11.1, 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from its roots will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. After rebuking the false shepherds and the prophecy of Jeremiah, it says in 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and will act wisely and do justice and righteousness. Matthew's gospel, the genealogy, begins in the first verse of the New Testament. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David son of Abraham. But then this cry for having mercy on me, that's an oft-repeated phrase in the, throughout the Bible, isn't it? You see it especially in the Psalms, but it occurs in many other places. Psalm 6, verse 2, Be gracious to me, O God, as for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. Psalm 51, Psalm 41, 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Do you need, do you see your need of mercy today? You see, I made an allusion to it earlier, but if you study the character of God and how God is described in all of his glorious attributes throughout the word of God, his infinite holiness and his absolute perfection and the law of God that's been given to us, keep this and live. If you don't, you die. We begin to see how far short we fall. We can't even begin to even even get close to that. Even in your, your best behavior, even your, your Roman Catholic grandmother who, who never had a dirty thought or whatever, you know, but, but still, she's a sinner. We are all sinners. And then all too often, formality falls in, right? Those, whether it's of all the other religions, it's a formality. You kind of just do this, and the deity will be happy with you, and it falls into a formality, There's no real desperate need for mercy. Or maybe there's a a, a dulling of the conscience because I'm going through the motions and therefore deity, God, whoever it is, Allah will be happy with me because I'm going through those motions. I'm doing good deeds. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, says this, as there is no mercy too great for God to give, so there is no mercy too too little for us to crave. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1 is giving sort of a biographical sketch of his life. It's only a few verses long. But he says this, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor to the church, he goes on, he says, yet I was shown mercy. He goes on to say that he's the greatest sinner in his own eyes. And that's what happens when you begin to understand the holiness of God and your own sinfulness. You begin to focus not so much on other sins, but you are keenly aware of your own sin so that you can say, I am the chief of sinners as far as I know, just as the apostle Paul did in his maturity Mark 2.17, earlier, Jesus has said, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, right? 
It's not those who are healthy, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Augustine said, God leads us to eternal life, not by our own merits, but according to his mercy. Though Jesus is determined to get to Jerusalem, look at verse 49. A bit of a shock, and Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. He heard the cry. He heard the cry from this blind beggar, and it causes him to stop. There's a large procession. He's towards the front. And in fact, look back in verse 32. It says, and and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. So Jesus is in the lead. There's a huge crowd behind him. Here he's going. And, And what happens? He hears the cry, and he stops. And he said, call him here. So they called to the blind man. He had set his face like flint, it says, and, and, and Luke. Um, and and he's, he's heading to Jerusalem for his work. He's, he's predicted his work in chapter 8, 9, and 10 here. He's going to be crucified. He's going to Golgotha ultimately. He's on mission to rescue and to save and to redeem sinners for which he came into the world to do. And yet... He stops. Jesus has time for poor beggars. Jesus has time to be concerned for your desperate plight, whatever it may be. Jesus had earlier stated his mission, quoting from Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom. To sinners. What does Jesus do? He's going along. He stops. He says, Call him here. That's an imperative in the original, so it's a command, obviously. Call him here. Now, we don't know how far away Barnabas was in Jesus. I get the idea there was some distance. Otherwise, he would have just said, Come here, right? If Barnabas was right there, there was, there was some distance between them. And Jesus' voice goes forth. Call him here. This shows the loudness of his cries. One of the promises in Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Isn't that beautiful? Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. And this is exactly what Barnabas does. And look at what the crowd says now. Before they're saying, shut up, Shh, be quiet, stop screaming. You know, they're rebuking him. And what do they do here? They say, the, the crowd says, take courage, stand up, for he is calling you. What marvel of marvels. He's heard your cry. Take courage, be encouraged, stand up. He's heard your cry. This, this word in the original means to, to, to be firm and resolute in the face of adverse circumstances, to be courageous. Be courageous. Be encouraged. Stand up. He's calling you. The same words Jesus uh, used back when the disciples were afraid when they were walking on water, when he was walking on water and they were, they were scared. He says, take heart. It is me. Do not be afraid. Take courage. Well, we've seen mercy needed. We've seen mercy requested. 
And now we move into mercy offered, verses 50 and 51. Do you lay aside every hindrance and everything that would, that would hinder you from coming to Christ to come to Him? The beggar springs to immediate action. In fact, the verbs are so vivid here. Verse 50, throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and he came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, I want to regain my sight. And you just got to picture this. He's on the side of the road. We don't know what point of the day this was. Perhaps he's received several coins and alms in his cloak that he's got in his, his lap or just in front of him. And look what it says. What did he do? That cloak? Who needs a cloak? Who needs money? He's, 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 he's throwing it aside and all the coins go flying. Probably the other beggars go, oh, if he doesn't want that, I'll take that because they don't see their need of mercy. And then what does he do? He throws it aside. He jumps up. He's like ready in action. And then he came to Jesus. I can't help but to think of Hebrews 12.1. We have such a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance to Jesus. You know, blind people have more sensitive hearing. The other senses are enhanced, as you know. And again, I'm picturing, I don't have, the Bible doesn't tell us how far away it was. Probably at least from here to Marlin at the very, very back, you know. I mean, probably a considerable distance. And he hears, Jesus hears, he stops Here's the command, take courage. He gets up and, he, and, he, and he's running. And you can just picture this. Remember, busy streets, right? Every, all the pilgrims are coming. And here he is, you know, like he's following the voice. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. And he's on mission to get to the feet of Jesus. And he doesn't care who's in the way. And there he goes. Have you ever seen a blind man run? I don't think I have. I haven't. But I, I think here, he probably did. He's coming to Jesus. He's pressing through the crowds, bumping into those who were traveling. Oh, that you would display such earnestness in coming to Jesus. Oh, that you would see your desperate need in such a way as this blind man to lay off every encumbrance, to smash idols, to get rid of everything out of your life that you might come to Christ to receive mercy. Why would you not do that? What hinders you today from coming to him, such a merciful and faithful high priest? Why would you want to run the other way? Here he comes. Nothing hinders him. He threw it aside, whatever money he could collect it. He jumped up and he ran to Jesus. He ran to Jesus. I think so many times we're entangled, aren't we? We're, we're entangled more and more in this day of ultimate distractions. Social media, internet, TV, news, billboards, you know, half-dressed people going around. There's so many entanglements that it's almost as though we need to purpose for a month to just chop off one, to untangle another, and, and, and to remove every bit of it so that we will then come and see the beauty of the triune God and the redemption that Christ has accomplished in His offer of mercy. That you would hear those words, take courage, 
Stand up. He's calling you. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Bartimaeus believed that the Messiah could heal him. He asked, what do you want me to do for you? The disciples wanted to sit on the right and the left. Bartimaeus has got a simple request, right? He's not asking for power. He's not asking for wealth. He's not asking for a wife. He's not asking for any of that that I might regain my sight, that I might see with my own eyes Messiah, that I might see him, that I might regain my sight. Now, some say, well, why is Jesus asking, what do you want me to do for you? Didn't Jesus know what his need was? Of course he did. And he knows what your need is. But why are we told to pray? He loves to hear us make requests of him. Again and again, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. This time he addresses him as teacher, and he stated his case. I want to regain my sight. I want to see you. Perhaps he had heard of these messianic promises of which we've read one and there's many the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped that's those many prophecies come to fulfillment in his first coming many other prophecies will come to fulfillment in his second coming which could happen at any time he probably had heard the first-hand accounts of the ministry of jesus this is three and a half years into his ministry in the last week triumphal entry he's crucified five days later so figure two days to the triumphal entry of travel if they're moving slow you know this is the last week of christ's life there's been a lot of ministry that's happened all over from galilee down all all the various regions and and so he has probably heard firsthand what jesus the nazarene has done do you relish in the mercy of god today Matthew Henry says this, all the compassions of all the tender fathers in the world compared to the tender mercies of God would be as as a candle to the sun or a drop to the ocean. We've seen mercy needed, mercy requested, mercy offered. Lastly, mercy adored. And that's what we see in the last verse. There was immediate physical and spiritual healing In fact, the text says, Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Literally, the made you well is sozo, which is the word for salvation in the original Greek. Um, Now, he's not saying, faith, therefore you're saved. He's saying that, that I have saved you. You have been made well. Luke's gospel adds that he glorified God. Luke 18, 43. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him and glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. This blind beggar of which people walked by and probably kicked up the dust, you know, that was, uh, you know, in his face is walking by on the dirt roads, becomes a model disciple, right? This is the last verse of this whole discipleship section. And here we have a man that has faith in Messiah, a man that's regained his sight, a man that's been spiritually made alive, and a man that follows after Christ, taking up his cross and following him. He would be later, in chapter 11 and verse 9, it says 
that the crowd was saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, his voice would be shouting that very thing. And I don't think his, many, now out of that crowd that was saying that, many of them were fair weather followers. And later, five days later, would yell, crucify, crucify. But we know Bartimaeus was not one of those. There's a hymn by Addison that says, When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view, I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. Do you adore God's mercy? Bartimaeus did. He realized his need. He requested of God that God might grant it. Christ in his infinite mercy offers the mercy to him. And the natural response is that Bartimaeus adored just as we do. Well, a couple points of application. May we realize that we are all beggars apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ. We have no right before God. Every time you pray, you are acknowledging that you are a beggar. You can't accomplish what you're asking. Hence, you're asking the omnipotent God. When we have trials and afflictions, we need to remember, even as it said in John 9, our scripture reading, it's that the works of God might be shown in and through us. Let nothing hinder you from coming to Christ. We have nothing to offer God but our cry for mercy. Our delight in being justified by faith. God is sovereign in salvation. God often elects and chooses the vilest of the world, the poorest of the world, the most depraved of the world. And I think that's to utterly ruin the idea that salvation's of human effort, right? He turns turns the worst into the best, right? He transforms. Story of Bart Millard, the Mercy Me singer, that movie that many of you probably have seen. Um, He referred to his dad as a monster. His dad beat him badly many times, and his uh, mother. And yet he sees his dad transformed months before his death. What a testimony that is to others. And you see monsters turned into humble worshipers of God. When you see the worst and the depraved turned into those who have been humbled and worship him. The vilest. But also, who else does he save? Sometimes the self-righteous. Sometimes those who are never monsters. Never the vilest. But they're just kind of prim and proper. God saves them too. Because they too see their need. You know, just because they haven't committed the vile acts doesn't mean they don't have need of salvation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a precious truth that mercy is offered to us. Pride of human merit just crumbles away. It humbles us to the dust. We sang before, our sins which are many, his mercy is more. Do you adore him? The hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was once blind, but now I see. It ascribes all praise and honor and glory and might and majesty and dominion to the triune God. Don't ignore this opportunity. 
have dealings with God in your own heart, those of you who have been born again, be encouraged that where you have come from and what He's delivered you from and this great place of privilege to be a child of God. And those of you who are outside of Christ, see your need. Don't sit here in pride. Don't sit here in self-pity. Don't sit here and make your list of excuses. Have dealings with God. You young people, don't harden your hearts. You must believe and trust in Christ yourself. He delights to give mercy. Don't ignore such a gracious Savior. The Bible says that the gate is narrow, but the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter by it, but the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few there be that find it. How I pray that each one would find that narrow way, go through that wicked gate, and run to Christ as we see Bartimaeus running for his Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for simple gospel-illustrated stories such as the one that we have just examined. Lord, have dealings in our heart, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.